Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the Maris Review. I'm Maris Preisman. I'm thrilled to be joined today by C. Pam Zhang. She's the author of How Much of These Hills is Gold, winner of a whole bunch of awards and uh, nominated for a whole bunch more and one of Barack Obama's favorite books of the year. She is a National Book Foundation 5 Under 35 honoree and a New York Public Library Coleman Fellow. And her new novel is called Land of Milk and Honey. Welcome, Pam. Thank you. So good to be here. You have written such a sensual novel, starting with all of the descriptions of food. And I'm wondering if you could tell me about writing a novel in which food is a metaphor for many things, but also food is food. (laughs) Yeah, I love that question because food occupies this very interesting place in our lives where, one, it is a necessity in order to live, but two, increasingly, um, it is also seen as an art form. And I do believe it is an art form. And I think that seeing the roles that food occupies on different tables in different contexts tells us a whole lot about the values of the people who are in that situation. And so it, it's funny because, yes, the food absolutely acts as a metaphor in this novel, especially as the chef um, goes to cook for this colony of the uber wealthy who have values that she doesn't necessarily align with. But at the same time, it also is is something that makes us animals, you know, um, and I loved playing with that duality. Absolutely. I feel like um, I was mostly reminded of Wizard of Oz when you Ooh. take the chef from a place of black and white and gray and then suddenly she's in Technicolor. <laughs> um, wow. Wait, I just have to stop and say what an incredible reference that is. It's kind of blowing my mind. There was an early version of this book where I had dreams of having, uh, there's like images that are dividers between the sections in the novel. And I had dreams of having them go from black and white to color. Obviously, that wasn't possible with printing. But wow. Amazing. Amazing. Um, and, And so maybe... Give us a little background um, on the grayness where everything feels your all senses are dulled because of something that, you know, seemingly could happen at any moment to us in real life. Yeah. So in the world of the novel, there is a smog of unknown origins that has cloaked the earth and killed off the majority of food crops. So most people are eating this soy, mung, protein, algal, flour replacement, and only the very, very, very wealthy have sunlight and fresh food. Um, So that's what happens in the book. And for me, it came from a place of similar bleakness. I wrote this novel at the very beginning of 2021. We were deep pandemic and It was a time when I felt fundamentally disconnected from my body. 
Um, you know, there were so many big issues to be putting our energy into, you know, the political situation, pandemic relief, the murder of George Floyd, all that. And I became impatient with the fact of having a body that had all these desires and wants. Um, they felt frivolous, right? And I really beat myself up for wanting to go out and eat a nice meal with a friend, wanting to go to a bar, wanting to travel. Um, and that sort of, so the bleakness of the world was compounded by this like enforced bleakness and stringency that I was having myself live under. And so the chef and the culinary background of the novel were really born out of one of my first meals out again after we were vaccinated um, and eating with people I cared about and seeing how the food really brought them back to themselves and brought them back to um, and it was this light bulb moment that made me think like, if I want that for the people I care about that, if I want that for the people that I care about, don't I want that for myself? Don't I in fact want that for most everybody? Absolutely. I, I When when you described the soy mung, it kind of reminded me of Soylent, not the uh, its people, <laughs> but, but, the, but the kind of meal that a tech bro, for the most part, would, would have uh, instead of running out to grab an actual bite to eat for lunch. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I have tried Soylent back in my days of living amongst tech bros. Um, but yeah, this, yeah, this world in which like if your ultimate goal is kind of like efficiency and you see your body and your brain as like a machine, like where does that lead you, right? Um, why do we want to become machines? Yeah. And, and even some further background into the unnamed chef's um, circumstances, even before the Smog descended, um, it sounds a little familiar uh, to, to, to what I'm hearing today, that there's a generation of people who are promised many different things for their futures, and then that has not come to bear out. Yeah. So the chef is American. And she is starts out the book stranded in Europe because um, the massive famine and crop failures in America have caused the country to close its borders and to actually begin to question, right, again, who is American, who is allowed back in. Um, there's a whole a whole list. And so the there is a question at the heart of the novel about like what does it mean to have faith in a nation in in, in a constructed identity, in any kind of identity, which certainly is a thing I think that many people living right now are contending with. Absolutely. Um, and the, the way you describe the super wealthy is also familiar in many ways, that, that there seems to be now more than ever, now more than in the Gilded Age, this desire by the ultra wealthy to hoard to hoard resources to hoard money um and to really make it kind of a, a zero-sum game yeah and i think what's also happening today is there's this fascinating obsession that the non-uber wealthy the majority of us actually have for these tactics right um, I think of things like Elon Musk's SpaceX venture, right? Absolutely a capitalist venture. 
uh, just kind of this like random fantasy of this man who has too much money to throw around. And people talk about it as if it is scientific innovation that's going to like bring us all forward when literally he's like, I'm going to sell tickets to go to Mars if I go to Mars. Um, but yeah, there's there's something that's in the air right now where I, I don't know, there's a kind of obsession um, with the with the uber wealthy. And maybe it's just obsession with the sort of scope of their imaginations about the future. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's funny to hear both Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos talk about space exploration as if what they're doing is noble, uh, is, is an exploration rather than a capitalist venture at heart. Yeah, and it, I think we often, like the public goes along with it because we're just sunk so deep into this this culture of capitalism and sort of like efficiency said in the same sentence as like kind of human progress, humanist progress, um, that it can be hard to disentangle. Absolutely. Especially when I feel like during the pandemic, we saw that um, the richest people in the world got even richer. And of course, the people who needed to work for their daily paycheck struggled more than ever. And I guess it's probably hard not to like to envy at least. Yeah, yeah. You know, another interesting trend that I noticed during the pandemic was in my life, and this is now anecdotal, right? A lot of the people who were not super wealthy and who had a lot of responsibilities to juggle were also the people who kept pushing themselves to give more, to mm. give back to their community, to check in on everyone, to kind of just worry on an individual level about the fate of the nation, the elections, the planet, the environment, right? Um, and that was a fascinating contrast that also kind of drew me into this book because I, as much as those big causes are important, I also wanted my friends and loved ones to have space for individual pleasure and for them to think of it as not only good for themselves, but in a weird way, good for the communities in which they were a part of, right? I'm, I was so tired of seeing my friends burn out um, because after you burn out, how can you give back to anybody else? Absolutely. And so so the chef's employer also, who, who isn't named, has this con small country. I'm picturing like a Monaco, but in the mountains, in the Italian mountains. And the chef's relationship with her employer starts out in a way that feels almost like we know what's going on in some capacity because one, she's bringing her ingredients that she is supposed to cook as if this was a show on the Food Network. <laughs> um, tell me about even writing about some of the meals that she is asked to prepare. How much you have to know about cooking yourself to, to... Yeah, it was funny. I was I did an event recently with Brian Washington, incredible writer on food, where he talked about like needing to cook the meals in order to write about them. And I was like, well, I just simply do not have the skills <laughs> to prepare these Michelin level meals on the mountaintop. Um, but what I did have was decades of experience watching Top Chef, <laughs> which was um, one of my one of the like most important points of culinary education for me, actually, because it allowed me to sort of 
understand the narrative and emotional possibilities of food and learn a lot of the vocabulary without having the uh, bank account uh, needed to glean those uh, learnings firsthand, right? Um, so I watched a lot of Top Chef in the course of writing this book. I also read a lot of chef memoirs, um, Blood, Bones, and Butter by Gabrielle Hamilton being one of um, the great ones. I've read a lot of food writers. And I think that it it did help because like not being able to cook the meals meant that I think I was able to take that imaginative stuff and make them even one notch more ridiculous, more decadent. Um, yeah. And, and then of course, the ingredients get more ridiculous and decadent and it does require an imagination to to be able to envision what a certain kind of meat might taste like. <laughs> yeah. And, and going back to one of your earlier questions too, right? It really puts under the microscope this idea that for the uber wealthy food can be merely a status symbol because they're certainly not eating all of the meals that they eat because of taste. They're not eating it for nutrition. They're eating it because they can eat it and nobody else can. Absolutely. Scarcity, that desire to have what other people can't have over just what is actually pleasing. And, and so we we watched the chef kind of get accustomed to her to her new life in, in the color. But at first she's still not that hungry for okay. food. Tell me tell me about what kind of hungers uh she she was hoping to quench. Yeah. So the chef after this period of living for I think something like three years in this smog choked world believes that she'll, you know, have an appetite once she gets to this mountain and anything she wants is at her fingertips. And what she finds is that weirdly a lot of the food is revolting to her and it seems that her tastes have changed. And, you know, it's fascinating because our sense of taste, by which I mean what is actually on our taste buds is something that you can't really change. Or if you do, it takes a lot of time. But like fundamentally, you like something or you don't like it in most cases. And so I was interested in how like that kind of hunger could function as a barometer for what the discomfort or the desire that the narrator felt about other things um, in this society on the mountaintop on the world, right? Um, and so it starts to tell her something that what her body wants is not these elaborate, decadent and ridiculous meals. Like what does her body actually want is a question that she pursues through the book. And it's the kind of question that I think is often not considered serious um, when we're talking about female characters, especially female characters who are thinking about pleasure. And it was important for me to render that with rigor on the page. Absolutely. And I think it, it that kind of question also leads me back to the idea of like, why would we, why should we care about art in, in times of crisis? Mm -hmm. And so much of this novel is, is about showing us that desire and pleasure make life worth living. Yeah, yeah. Station Eleven was a book I thought about a little bit less when I was writing it and more like after I had written it and was looking at the pages in front of me, right? That um, quote, to survive is insufficient. 
It it really rang true with me, and I think the pandemic was a watershed moment for any of for many of us, right? To realize that even when we had our health and shelter and food on the table, um, what was really missing, what made life worthwhile, was a lot of the other stuff. Absolutely. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So tell me a little bit about the employer's daughter, Aida, in terms of you you made her character, to me anyway, feel so complicated. I was not to, I, this is not a spoiler because it comes pretty early, but she, she disciplines her dogs physically mm-hmm. and I'm just prepared to turn off my brain at that point and just be like, no, I can't, I, I can't do it with this person. And, and yet you bring out her humanity too. And she's a super yeah. genius, which helps. Yeah. No, I was interested in, so, you know, again, we have this narrator who grew up in difficult situations in the U.S. and, you know, starts the book in a difficult situation in Europe. And then I was interested in creating Ida, who is this, you know, the daughter of a billionaire who is incredibly brilliant, who has had privilege at her fingertips her whole life, and play with this extreme of female ambition if it could be almost perfectly realized. And we sort of do realize over the course of this book that even Ida um, is inhibited and has certain like structural obstacles to overcome. But yeah, I wanted to create a, a female character that could do almost everything she wanted. And she she is just on the verge of being a perfect supervillain because she's so smart and she has developed these labs within the mountains um, where all sorts of important um, experimentations are happening. Yeah, I, it's, it's so fascinating to hear you say supervillain. Um, I love it. I'm I'm so excited to see how other people approach her. Uh, I think that in an early draft of the novel, she was, I did write her to be kind of straightforwardly a villain. And it was interesting to me to see how her character resisted that and the book resisted that as I got deeper into it. Absolutely. And it's clear. Um, and, and so then we, we, we get to the point about, um, the point of where you start writing about sex, which is so similar um, in tone to to the enjoyment of food. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah. Oh, I love that you made that connection. Um, yeah, there are, I loved writing the sex scenes in the novel and it's kind of interesting because there are many writers today who I deeply admire for for their sex writing, but I would say like the greatest influence on the sex writing in this book was probably the food writer MFK Fisher. Because she writes about food so beautifully in a way that uses a lot of restraint. Like her approach to food writing seems to be to 
describe just enough to kind of make the reader like lean in and then fill in those gaps visually and emotionally for themselves. Um, and so that was a lesson I took into the sex writing as well. I wanted it to be evocative and not comprehensive. I love that. Another big theme that seems to infuse your novel is the idea of complicity in the uh, personal sense, you know, how, how much did the chef feel um, guilty for um, being a part of this small community? But, but then it, you kind of expand it to the idea of like the climate and, and the weather and the world is uh, a bit on fire and um, none of us are really are innocent. Yeah, none of us are innocent. And I think that um, when I started thinking about this theme of complicity, where it led me was to this question of scarcity versus abundance, right? Um, I think that in the world of the novel and in our world today, if you open a newspaper, it's all pretty much doom. Um, You know, there are clear issues with the climate. There are clear disasters now and on the horizon. But the danger of reading the news is that way is that it feels like um, doom is preordained. And it puts us all into the scarcity mindset where we're constantly worried about what we're losing. And so the chef in my novel comes to question what abundance actually looks like, right? Because at first she thinks it's this kind of uh, tangible abundance on the mountain, being able to have foie gras, being able to have fresh cream, being able to have fresh produce. But that isn't actually what she wants. Um, and so it when I... When I talk about like locating pleasure within an individual female body, it's also this question of like, where, what is your own compass, right? Pleasure doesn't mean luxury or decadence for most of us, I think, actually. You would be sick of that pretty soon. Um, and so, what does it mean to live by your own kind of moral compass and to orient your pleasures towards things that also? not only enrich your own life, but enrich the lives of people around you that you care about. And I love how processed foods then <laughs> comes into the story because it 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 does feel like a relief when when the chef starts craving Wonder Bread again. <laughs> yeah. Let me tell you, uh, when I was working in my tech job in San Francisco, there was one time that my team had a meal at a Michelin-starred restaurant, and I went out afterwards and got McDonald's. I think you, most people want both in their lives, right? Absolutely. Um, just like the menu. <laughs> I haven't yet. I feel like I will after book tour. Oh, you will have to, yeah, afterward. Um, I, I, and I also like in terms of creating hope, one of the things that you do first and foremost is you let us know that the chef is telling this story from the future. And so there is a future, <laughs> which is very reassuring when, um, when we're delving in. Yeah. Um, you know, during the pandemic, when I had a hard time with fiction, I was reading a lot of biographies of women artists and writers, um, and it was really a way to remind myself that not only a future was possible despite p 
periods of hardship, but that again, this like abundant future that it makes creativity and art possible um, could exist. Another a line that I love from from the chef when she's talking about sex, but also faith. She she calls her time in the mountain part of it her, the summer of her de extinction, mm-hmm. and not only does she come from this gray world but for so much of the time her time in the mountains she is she finds herself disappearing into into the role she's meant to play tell me the about the act of of, of spying her out <laughs> yeah and such a good question let me think about that for a sec yeah, I think that because the chef starts the book in the survivalist mentality where she's like, all that matters is I will do anything. I will lie on my application. I will play any role in order to get this job to survive. Um, because she starts out in that mindset, she loses herself, right? She will become whatever she needs to be to survive. And, you know, the book, without spoiling it, um, is interested in these questions of what women, what roles women, and particularly Asian women, must fit themselves into what kinds of tropes and stereotypes in order to have value to a society. And so that kind of like pushing yourself into this tiny box is the death of your own persona. Um, And so that's, yeah, I think that's where the line about de-extinction comes from. In order to come alive again, she has to know who she is. And she has to know who she is outside of these external labels that are put on her. I love that. Um, Land of Milk and Honey, beautiful book. Before we go, please, um, would you recommend some books for us? Yes, The Gastronomical Me by MFK Fisher, which I mentioned earlier. Great. All This Could Be Different by Sarah Duncan Matthews. Also has some of the best, I think, contemporary millennial food scenes of yes. meals eaten disgustingly in bed that I can think of. Um, Sweet Bitter by Stephanie Danler is a wonderful book about like the presentness of the body um, and an education in food. I love that. Pam, thank you so much. Land of Milk and Honey out now. Thank you, Maris. Thank you for listening to the Maris Review. And check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.